2 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, So Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who's been mourning for a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maid servant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family is risen up against your maidservant. And they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you any more. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Therefore the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Now, therefore, I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let my lord the king speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken for. Your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. 
to bring about this change of affairs. Your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise according to the wisdom of the angel of God to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, all right, I've granted this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Jeshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his house, but did not see the king's face. Now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. Or about four and a half pounds of hair. That's a lot of hair. Verse 27, sorry. To Absalom were born three sons. And one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a woman of beautiful appearance. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and so had said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you saying, Come here so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Jeshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him, And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. Ask any parent or grandparent, what is your greatest joy? What are they going to tell you? My children, my grandchildren. Ask any parent, what is your greatest sorrow? And the parent will typically say, my children. David's relationship with Absalom was such. They were the greatest source of joy. And they were the greatest source of sorrow. Part of the plan in this chapter that you've got to come to grips with right from the start as you read the chapter is to understand that David has been unwilling to come up with a plan to confront Absalom, to convict Absalom, to 
judge Absalom. He's been, he's been unwilling to come up with a plan to forgive him and restore him. In verse 23 and verse 24, where it says, So Joab arose and went to Jezer and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. He brings him back, but he doesn't bring him back all the way. The failure to come up with a plan is going to produce bitter fruit in the heart of his son. And the way we know that it's going to produce bitter fruit in the heart of his son is for those of you who have the nerve to read ahead, you read chapters 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and all of a sudden that bitterness is going to erupt into full-blown Betrayal and rebellion. Now, our story has revolved around three main characters. Amnon, the oldest son who was killed in the last chapter. Amnon wanted. Amnon got. Amnon hated his sister Tamar. That's chapter 13. Absalom hated. Absalom murdered. Absalom wanted to see his father. Amnon will continue to deceive and will eventually be murdered. David, who longed for his son, won't see him. And as you can imagine, all of the drama, all of the strife, all of the conflict. I know what some of you are thinking. This sounds like my family. (laughs) With all of the drama and all of the strife. I mean... I had no idea that the Bible was filled with these kinds of characters who did these kinds of things. The story has gone from rape in chapter 13, verses 1 through 19, to revenge in chapter 13, verses 20 through 39, and now Absalom's return in chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. David's son Absalom is in Jeshur in exile. Absalom has sought and received sanctuary from his grandfather. This is his mother's father who is the king of a kingdom. If you have a a map in the back of your Bible, if you go north of the Sea of Galilee and you continue to go north into what's now modern-day Syria and you just hang a little right, you go north and east, you're going to find yourself in, in the ancient kingdom of Jeshur. Sin has separated father and son. And we know that's the characteristic of sin, doesn't it? Sin separates. Sin obfuscates. That means makes not clear. Sin separates. And so David must have longed for reconciliation with his son. And Joab knew something was wrong. He knew also because he had been with David almost all of his life. Remember, Joab is a cousin. And Joab has been with him through all of the drama, through all of the trial, through all of the circumstances that David has experienced as he's run from from Saul. And so Joab, if anybody knows David, Joab does. So here's the question. Was it right or was it wrong for David to send for his son? Hindsight always has a clearer vision. Absalom will return. He will return, but it won't be through reconciliation. 
In other words, if our story ended at the end of chapter 14, we could go, oh, look, they kissed and made up and they lived happily ever after. But unfortunately, chapter 15 and 16 come in and you have full-blown rebellion. Absalom will cause division. He will bring the country to full-blown civil war and the brink of ruin. And in the next chapter, Absalom will gather a loyal band of followers. He'll openly criticize his father. Clearly, Joab in chapter 14 has tricked David into making a decision, a decision that is going to prove unwise for his family. In 2 Samuel, remember, David has already heard a parable from Nathan the prophet. You remember the story. How in the wickedness of his circumstances with Bathsheba and how he had taken this other man's wife and impregnated her and then killed her husband and then tried to keep it a secret. And you remember the story and now there is another parable in this particular point in the story. One Bible teacher says when people get involved in the story of others, they often think more clearly about their own story. And so we know that Jesus, in the New Testament, he teaches in parables. And remember what a parable is. It's an earthly story that describes a heavenly truth. And our story is like that. It's like a play. But the way that I want you to think about it is in this play, Joab is the producer. Joab is the writer. Joab is the director. The actress, it's starring a wise woman from Tekoa. Tekoa is about five miles south of Bethlehem, which is the hometown of uh, Amos, the prophet. So what's motivated Joab to put on this little play? We're not told. It could be that Joab wants to make David happy. It could be that simple. It could be that Joab saw that Absalom is the logical heir to the throne. It could be that Joab is deeply concerned about the nation because this is no longer just a family matter between David and his son. David is the king. His son is the heir to the throne. And what happens in this family is going to have a profound effect on the entire nation. And see, you might think that the circumstances that happen in your family only affect your family, but that's not true, is it? Because the drama and the conflict and, and the, the things that happen begin to expand. So we're not told. An aging king and no clear line of succession could make for a precarious political situation. And it could very well be that Joab is thinking to the best of his ability that he's acting in the best interest of the nation. Or he's acting in the best interest of David. But again, we're not told what is motivating him. Now, the woman from Tekoa was more than an actress. She's at least has a modest reputation for wisdom. It says, so Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa, this is the little village five miles south of Bethlehem, hometown of Amos, and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner. And put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time 
for the dead. And so he's asking her to put on a little play, if you will. The woman um, is going to have a lot of things going for her. She's going to be far enough away that David can't immediately check out her story. She's going to be older and a widow. And if you know anything about David, David has a soft spot for people who are in trouble and people who are in need. And so Joab has probably approached David on a few occasions about Absalom's return with no success. And so he's tried to figure out ways. How can I bring this family back together? How can I bring this family back together? But nothing seems to be working. So he concocts the scheme. He contacts the woman. And then it says in verse 3, Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. In other words, he's acted out the little play and the little drama. And he's told the woman how the drama should unfold. Now part of what you have to remember is David has not seen his son Absalom for three years. It's been three years since Amnon raped his sister and Absalom killed his brother and he's been hiding out in this particular place. And so she tells the story. And as she's telling the story, it says, And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Now you have to understand something. In the the ancient world of David, this is about 1000 B.C. She lives in a small village. Each little village had their own little judicial system. There were elders, village elders, that you could go to adjudicate and get justice. And if you didn't get the justice that you thought that you, were, that you deserved, you could appeal to the king. Just like in our culture, in our, our society, there's a court system that we have. And court decisions usually fall into one of two categories. Decisions that are final and decisions that can be appealed. And so it was not unusual in that culture and society to appeal to the king and the king could hear hear the matter. So she says, help, O king. Then the king says to her, what troubles you? And she answers, indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons and the two fought with each other in the field. And there was No one depart them, but one struck the other and killed him. So she presents herself as a widow. She presents herself as having two children. The two children get into a fight. Tragically, one brother kills the other brother. And in verse 7, it says, And now the whole family is risen up against your maidservant. And they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also. Here's what she's saying. It isn't just about justice, O Lord. You see, the people who want my son dead, they're not simply concerned about justice. They want all of the property for themselves. Ah. By the way, in conflicts, is it usually as simple as he said, she said, he did this, they did that? You know, you've heard the old expression, there are two sides to every story. And there are people who are motivated for various reasons to do different things. So she introduces to the king that this isn't just simply about justice. And so when she says, 
so they would extinguish my ember that is left. One son is dead. The other son is alive. In that culture and society, property and name went to the family. In other words, that is the way you transferred wealth. And so what she is basically saying is, so they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. In other words, what she was saying is, if I hand over my son and if he is executed, all that our family has worked for will completely disappear into the hands of the people who want my son dead. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. In other words, let me think about what you just said. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house and the king and his throne be guiltless. It was her way of saying, I want to assume responsibility in case people are suggesting even for a moment that you're acting in a way other than justly. And so it says, the king says, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you anymore. In other words, if someone is accusing you of something, you bring them to me and I will advocate for you. Then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God. She calls on the name of the Lord and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy anymore lest they destroy my son. In other words, if you go home and you think about it, it may be too late. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. The moment that he made that decision, David was willing to set aside justice for what he himself wanted. So the big question at this point is, well, why doesn't David see himself in the story? Do you remember the earlier story when Nathan said, you're that man? Why doesn't he see himself in this story? Well, again, I'm going to make a couple of suggestions. She's a widow, which means it's an invitation to sympathy. She lives a distance from Jerusalem, which would make it difficult to check out the story. She's old, which gives more dignity to the story. She wears the clothes of mourning to heighten the effect. She brings the case of a family estrangement to David. Why do you suppose that's important? Is there estrangement in his own family? She brings the case that was not similar or too similar, lest it arouses David's suspicion. And I think all of these things are working together in order to make the story credible. And so it doesn't occur to David that she's talking about Israel and not her family. David also has so completely rationalized his own behavior towards Absalom that David doesn't realize he needs to change his attitude towards his son. And see, this becomes an important part of the story. In his circumstance, he doesn't want to bring himself to a place where he initiates the reconciliation. And by the way, whenever there's a conflict, someone, someone, someone has to step up to the plate and ask this question. Who is going to do what God requires in this matter? He started it. No, she, he, she started it. He started it. She started it. 
at what point is someone going to say, what would God have us do in the midst of this problem? And so the son who killed his brother deserved to be put to death. And the clan was calling for the death penalty. And in order to carry out the punishment, this would be the end of the woman's family line. In the fabricated story, the clan would claim all of the possessions. David quickly decides that the remaining son should not be executed. That mother and son would come under the king's care. What David could not see in his own family, he could clearly see in another person's family. It is human nature that we all tend to apply judgment more wisely to others than to ourselves. In every crime, in every circumstance, in every difficult situation, your whole life will be spent trying to weigh justice and mercy and compassion. And particularly if you're a mother and your child is disobeyed, one of two things come to your mind. Is it wrath? <laughs> or is it mercy? I don't know about you. What kind of a mom did you have? One that was given to wrath? Or a mom who was given to mercy? Sometimes wrath is exactly the right thing, and sometimes mercy is exactly the right thing. And would to God that God would give us wisdom on what to do. So here's the big question for you. What should David do? What should David do? And the reason why this becomes an important question, it becomes an important question for you. Whenever there's a disagreement, whenever there's a trial, whenever there's a trauma, whenever there's a conflict. And I'm going to give you a hint on what to do. Whenever you're in trouble and you find yourself in a circumstance where you have to choose between justice and compassion and mercy, see what the Bible has to say. And what does the Bible have to say about David's circumstance? In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 8, I'm going to read a few verses to you. Deuteronomy 17, 8, it says this. If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge, between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates... Then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So here's where we're, at, where we're at so far. Are there some cases that are difficult to decide? What do you think the answer is? Yes. Is everyone going to know everything about everything when it comes how to wisely proceed? The answer is no. And sometimes you're going to have to ask God to help you think it through. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 8, it says, Ask the Lord. And then in verse 9, And you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them that they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they order you. According to the and then in verse eleven it says, according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now the Lord who acts presumptuously, now the man 
Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. Part of what I'm trying to get you to understand is when Joshua was in charge, after taking over for Moses, Joshua would frequently appeal to the high priest and get answers on how to proceed on a difficult situation. And that's what David was supposed to do. David was supposed to be able to say, I am the king. And he is my son. I'm the king and he's my son. I'm not just a guy with a son. I am the king. And now this son is also heir to the throne of our entire country. And clearly I don't have a clear way of thinking through these difficult circumstances. And so I am going to need help from the men who govern this country. Israel was supposed to be governed by God. True or false? In your family, who's supposed to govern your family? God. Is your husband always going to be wise in all matters? All the women are going, no, that's clearly not true. (laughs) Thank you, ladies. Clearly, there's going to come a time when difficult decisions need to be made. And as you go through the difficult decisions, someone is going to have to say, what does God have to say about the problem that we're facing? And even when a king comes to power, crucial matters of justice were to be decided by the priests in the tabernacle, who with the judges were to seek guidance from God. And remember what the Bible says in the book of James, wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and gentle and easily entreated. Can you imagine if David had gone to the priest and to the high priest and and cried out to God and said, Lord, I don't know what to do with my son. Particularly the one who raped his sister. If David had gone to the priest at that particular time and cried out to God for justice and mercy, for wisdom on how to proceed in a way that was going to be God-honoring, everything would have been different. And everything would be different in your life. Instead of coming to the conclusion, I'm going to do what I want. Instead of saying, Lord... As difficult as this is, I'm going to make every attempt to do what you want me to do in the circumstance that I find myself in. David bypassed the chain of command that was established by God. And when we bypass the chain of command, almost invariably we're going to find ourselves in a difficult circumstance. Have you ever asked yourself this question, this is a problem and I don't know how to fix it. This is a conflict, and I don't know how to resolve it. Here are two people, and their relationship has been broken because of a series of decisions that have been made. The Bible says, 
What does God have to say? What does the Bible have to say? You know, a child-centered home is one in which the child perceives the family exists to please him or her. Mom and dad and brothers and sisters exist only to serve and meet the needs of the child. A God-centered home is one in which the child perceives that the husband is the head of the family. Wife is in submission to her husband. Theirs, that is, the husband and the wife, is the primary relationship. Their relationship is permanent and exists to glorify God. Children have a secondary and a temporary relationship. And because God has always meant that homes were to be God-centered and not child-centered, oddly enough, when we come to the place and when we say, hey, I want to just do what's best for the child, let me just be very clear here. What's best for the child is that mom and dad obey God. Is it rude for me to repeat this? The best thing for the child is that mom and dad obey the Lord. In ancient times, Joshua did exactly that. He worked closely with Eliezer the high priest, but not David. David failed to discipline Amnon for the rape of his sister. David failed to discipline Absalom for the murder of his brother. And now David is taking the law into his own hand when he promises the woman from Tekoa that no harm would befall her son's head. The moment that he does that and he takes justice in his own hands and he says, I don't care what God says and I don't care about the justice of the circumstances. I'm going to do what I've decided to do. And by the way, a dangerous breakdown in law and order was taking place. Not only in David's heart, but in David's kingdom. Now think about this for just a moment. David's heart is affecting David's family. And David's family is now affecting the entire kingdom. Absalom has received a message. The message is, my dad's the king, and I'm above the law. Absalom would disregard the law of God. Now, you have to understand, this is what happens when you usurp the chain of authority, or you deny the chain of authority, or you ignore the chain of authority. The moment that Absalom comes to the conclusion that he is above the law, and that he can disregard the law of God, that's exactly what he's going to wind up doing in chapters 15 and 16. He assures himself that he can do whatever he wants because his father would never cross him or correct him. Absalom is going to blatantly break God's laws. And listen carefully to what I'm about to say. If you give yourself permission to break God's law in your home, your kids were going to go, well, you do this. You break God's law. You ignore God's law. You disregard God's law. Well, that's because we're not under the law. Is that the right response to a child? Yes. If you want to have a theological discussion about law and grace, yes. But if it's a discussion about lying and stealing, if it's a discussion about doing what's right rather than what's wrong, and that's part of the challenge. Because Absalom would blatantly break God's laws... And in turn, the law will eventually crush him. And that's part of the challenge for each and every one of us. 
If you disregard God's command, if you disregard God's instructions, if you say, I don't care about God's instructions, I'm going to do what I want, guess what? It's eventually going to catch up with you. Once David committed to judgment, the woman dropped all pretense. The woman, or Joab, you know, remember he's the one who has produced the play, directed the play, written the play, saw the issue of Absalom not just as personal but political. He is, after all, potential heir to the throne. And so that's exactly what the woman says. The woman basically says, hey, look, ha-ha, surprise, um, this is all, you've, David, you've just been punked. What? What? Yeah. The hidden cameras are are back there and you've just been punked because, hey, guess what? Everybody in the country knows that your son is in exile. And so we've got you on hidden camera. And we need you to understand something. She views David's actions as against the people of God. That's what that means in verse 13 when she says, So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. In other words, she's in effect saying, You've rendered this judicial decision but guess what you can't even render a decision for yourself it could very well be that Joab and many people in Israel felt that it was in the country's best interest for Absalom to be restored to his place as the future heir question if the majority think it's right does that make it right that's exactly right just simply because the majority thinks it's right that's not what makes it right We're back to what does God have to say? What might appear to be the best political solution isn't always the best spiritual solution. And remember, David has already gone through this. Conviction. Compassion. Crushing. He has to go through this process. Remember what I already talked about? Remember what I already said in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when the people who say, well, you look, David got away with it. Really? Really? You talk about your chickens coming home to roost. You talk about what you sow, you will also reap. Now all of a sudden, David's sinful circumstances has created an avalanche of pain and problems and drama. Leadership in countries, leadership in churches, leadership in families are established by the Lord. And God doesn't always call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And God has not chosen Amnon or Absalom. God has chosen Solomon. Do these guys know that at this point? No. How can we have God's wisdom in choosing our leaders? What are the qualifications for leadership? The minimum qualification has to be a willingness to hear, understand, obey, and apply the scriptures to yourself. You know, it's hard not to feel sorry for David. We admit it is hard sometimes to please God and not alienate the affections of our family. And what David did 
failed to satisfy the justice of God and it failed to satisfy the deep need for discipline in the life of his son. And it's going to come back. And it's going to hurt him. So we go to Absalom's plot. I'm going to pick up in verse 21 where it says, And the king said to Joab, All right, I've granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. In other words, you have to understand something. This whole scheme could have backfired on Joab. He could have just said, Joab, for entering into this conspiracy to trick the king, I'm pretty much killing you, putting you to death. But that's not what happens. So Joab arose, went to Jeshur, brought Absalom to Jerusalem. See, part of what you've got to understand, remember I talked about that this is a king in a kingdom that's estranged, and as the bitterness and the resentment and the hurt and the conflict continues to grow, literally the whole nation is at risk. And in verse 23, it says, So Joab arose and went to Jeshur. He brings Absalom. And the king says, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Okay, think about this for just a minute. He's brought him back, but not for restoration. The Bible says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, knowing that you yourself are subject to the very same problem. In other words, if you don't have a plan of restoration, you probably won't restore. And in verse 25, it says, Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. And remember what I already told you too. When the Bible adds good looks, we're talking drop dead gorgeous. He has all the right physical characteristics. He's big. He's strong. He's attractive. He has this long flowing hair. Think Fabio hair. Think, think that Fabio hair where you know it's blowing in the wind and you go, hello darling. You know when I'm close to you like this and I look in your eyes. And I see the reflection of myself and I think, Fabio, you look good. <laughs> it's that kind of good looking. It's where the guy looks into your eyes in order to see his own reflection and goes, oh. <laughs> Think Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio face. And in the Hebrew culture, when you have a hair, a full head of hair, it's a sign of virility and power. Think lion's mane. And so that's in their culture. When, when they cut the hair, they announce how much the hair weighs. Remember, there's so many shekels. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew, that means when, when it came time to get his hair cut, four and a half to five pounds of hair drops onto the floor. And they go, hmm. That's impressive. <laughs> and to Absalom were born three sons and one daughter, and he names his one daughter after, his, after the sister who is violated, Tamar. 
She was a woman of beautiful appearance. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Didn't it? Therefore Absalom sent for Joab and to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Now you've got to understand something that's happening. Absalom knows something's wrong. He knows that he can't live in a perpetual state of limbo. And for some accounts, you would think he's been estranged from his father for three years. And now he's been estranged for two more years, for a total of five years. And for some of you, you're thinking five years to let this thing go on is far enough. He waits a long time to exact revenge on his brother's sin against his sister. And he resented being in Jerusalem but not having access to his father. And when Joab doesn't respond, what does he do? He sets Joab's field on fire. And again, you know, that's a good way of getting your your neighbor's attention. But again, I think that there's a transition that takes place even in Joab's thinking. Remember, Joab has gone to bat for Absalom. Joab has put his career on the line. He's advocated for him in the court. How does he repay him? He sets his field on fire. Now, many potential leaders have terrible flaws, but you can tell a lot about a person by the way they get your attention. (laughs) If you're a parent and you have a child, your child has already created a mechanism whereby they're going to get your attention. For some, they put their hair on fire. Others, they run away from home. There's any number of ways that a child may want to get your attention. But you can tell a lot about a person by the way they ask for help and by the way they treat people in particular. And so Absalom has come to the end of his line and he says, look, I'm willing to face my father even if that means he's going to execute me. I have done something wrong. And if he's going to execute me, he's going to execute me. And then Absalom answered and said, Look, I sent to you saying, Come here, so that I may send you to the king and say, Why have I come from Jeshur? It would have been better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. What would have been the right way to go? And what would have been the right thing to do? Whatever the right way to go and whatever the right thing to do, I'm going to suggest to you that the right thing would have been David to go to the high priest and to cry out to God and say, Lord, I'm ill-qualified and unequipped to come to an appropriate decision that's going to be a God-honoring decision. And I'm going to leave it in your hands. But I also see that there's mitigating circumstances. And the mitigating circumstances belong to me. I wickedly and sinfully misrepresented the Lord to my children. I wickedly and sinfully refused to discipline my son. I wickedly and sinfully refused to discipline my other son. Do you think they're going to take that into consideration? I think that they are. And the scene is intense in verse 33. So Joab went to the king and told him, And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king. 
And he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. You know, kisses come in many forms and fashions, don't they? In most cultures, it's the sign of affection. It is the cultural expression of affection. And the New Testament, maybe the most famous kiss of all time, was when Judas met Jesus in the garden. And do you remember what Jesus said to Judas? Are you going to betray me with a kiss? You know, when someone is intent on betraying you, sometimes the best thing that you can do is just let them. If someone is committed to betrayal, perhaps the best thing is to just get it over with. Absalom could have received the death penalty from his father. And if the story ended here, it would be a powerful story of forgiveness and reconciliation. Whatever was in David's heart, Absalom will use his father's forgiveness, not as an opportunity to restore the relationship, but as an opportunity to betray the relationship. But the story doesn't end here. Because rape, revenge, return is going to lead to treason in the next chapter. But there's a whole lot more that we need to cover. So that's going to be for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that Sometimes we make good decisions and sometimes we make bad decisions. Lord, we as parents don't always know how to weigh justice, forgiveness, mercy. Lord, we as children know that we deserve hell. That justice demands that we pay for our sin. But that grace and mercy provides a way out. That all of our wickedness and all of our iniquity and all of our indecencies. That there's a mechanism of hope and forgiveness. Lord, we know that David's son is going to do what David could never do. Lord, how do you bring justice? And how do you bring mercy? At exactly the same moment. And Lord, we know that the answer is found in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus will satisfy your justice. And by satisfying your justice, extend mercy to each and every one of us. Lord, I pray for that person who finds themselves here. And Lord, they're wondering who will be the courageous person to make the first step at forgiveness and reconciliation in a, in, a, in a relationship that's been injured. Lord, I pray that we as men and women would cry out to you and say, Lord, I don't always have wisdom on how to proceed. Lord, give me wisdom on how I can make this wrong right. No wonder the New Testament says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Lord, we pray that that would be our life, that we would be men and women 
who love you and who want to be tender-hearted and merciful and forgiving, that we could extend both grace and mercy to one another because grace and mercy has been extended to us. Lord, we know that sometimes there are awful consequences to horrible choices. But Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray, so far as it's within our ability to be gracious, to be merciful, to be generous, to be kind, to be wise. In Jesus' name, amen.